listeners, it's Chris here from Palico. Thank you for joining our podcast, Capital Calls, the show where we sit down with thought leaders from private equity. We chat with institutional investors, fund managers, and advisors in the space to discuss the industry and to get their take on what really matters. On this episode, we talk to Asaf Huresh, general partner at Vintage Investment Partners, which is a well-regarded global venture platform invested in many of the world's leading venture funds and startups across Israel, Europe, and the U.S. It is Israel's only integrated venture platform combining secondary funds, direct co-investment funds, and fund of funds. Previous to that, he was a principal at Greylock IL, now known as 83 North, where he worked on enterprise software and consumer deals across Israel and Europe. Before Greylock, he was a consultant at the Boston Consulting Group as a member of the corporate development team. Asaf was also a manager at an enterprise software startup and an engineer at Elbit Systems. In this episode, we enjoy a great conversation with Asaf, who shares the importance of having a presence and understanding of the local ecosystem in order to succeed in VC. And we discover what makes the Israeli startup ecosystem so special amongst many other interesting topics. Asaf, welcome. Thank you for joining Capital Calls. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Well, let's start with your background, uh, how you got into investing. We were just chatting before that you started like many people in Israel with your career in the Air Force. And then that was somewhat what led you to the Israeli startup nation approach and then had another journey beyond that. So maybe why don't we start from the beginning of how you first got interested in investing? So getting from where I was born in the north part of Israel through the Air Force to investing wasn't like a straight line, right? I spent actually eight years in the Air Force, graduated as a, as a helicopter pilot, spent a bunch of time there and studied a ton. When I finished my, my service, I sort of realized tech is pretty big in Israel and I should at least understand what computers are doing and how they are interacting with each other. So I went to study uh, computer science in Tel Aviv University. Many people know the 8200 sort of unit in, in the Israeli intelligence. So I was surrounded by these folks uh, when I studied, and I'm still surrounded by them today because they could be part in the ecosystem. But all of them knew how to code, except for me. Uh, but I did go through this uh, pretty successfully, actually, and loved it. Um, and then spent a couple of years, peers in, in the uh, in the startup thing in, in Israel. What companies were you involved in in the beginning? So, 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 yeah, so I work for Elbit, which is a, a traded company. They're doing, you know, military uh, type of equipment. And I, I started there as, as an algorithmic engineer and then sort of grew to a project manager and wrote some code and managed some projects, uh, some of them communication, some of them more algorithmic type of stuff. And then went on to, to work for a startup that actually did mostly enterprise business sort of uh, application for manufacturing for show floor kind of customization and optimization and managed a, a small team there at, at a client sites. And that kind of led me to understand that I'm interested in both like the technical part, but also the business part of this. So right. left Israel, back then I already had two kids, left Israel to, to do my MBA at Wharton in, in the University of Pennsylvania, where I met your, your colleague and, and the CEO and um, my class. And, you know, had a fantastic time there, spent then a couple more years in BCG, the Boston Consulting Group. But that time, back to your question, 
I think I already knew that I want to be an investor and, you know, all of this kind of gathering all these experiences will hopefully help me be a better investor in the future. And then when I moved back to Israel, I was actually planning to move back with BCG and work in the Israeli office, but already had some relationships with some of the venture capital funds in Israel and got an offer to join what was back then Greylock Partners in, in Israel and in Europe. It felt like an easy decision because it seemed like I'm going to like the guys and also kind of sort of finally do what, what I wanted to do, which is sort of the combination of tech and investing. Back then, there were four partners, three guys in Israel and uh, Laurel in and, and London, and I was the only non-partner going back and forth between Europe and Israel, and it felt like a good lending spot for me. And after a couple of years, I uh, actually joined my where I'm at today, Vintage, which we will talk about more, I assume. And since the Air Force, I've been jumping every couple of years between kind of positions and jobs and locations. And I've been with Vintage for almost five years now, which is great. Right. Well, let's talk about investing in, in Israel from a global perspective. And you mentioned your experience with Greylock. And there's a couple of different approaches, right? There's the headquarters in the U.S. and then we seed offices all over the world. There's kind of more the franchise approach. How would you say, you've kind of seen it from the inside of one firm, but what would you say are some of the successes and failures of different models of investing in their, in their early stage ecosystem in Israel from a kind of a global perspective? Yeah, so I'll take this from personal standpoint first. And, you know, I, I mentioned I was with Greylog and we can talk about this as well, but I also am in a global firm now uh, because we're investing in Israel and Europe and in the U.S. Our balance is weighted heavily more to the U.S. and Europe than, than in Israel today. Having said that, we're all centralized still in an office in Israel, and that was one of the core reasons that I decided to join because I felt like, you know, being with the team and where decisions are being made will be very important. And this is something that I think a lot of people find it hard to, to grasp is that venture capital is a very local business. Even though innovation is global and funding today is global and teams are decentralized and COVID sort of took this to the extreme, still venture capital and the fact that you can relate and understand what type of business and what type of team you're investing in is very local. Back to your question, in Israel specifically, and, and I think in other geographies as well, there are a lot of global funds that, that operate, right? So some of them come from the U.S., let's say a firm like NEA right, or Andreessen Horowitz, they invest in Israeli startups. The way they do this is there is someone in their team who is sort of in charge of the geography and they come and visit and they develop their network with earlier stages funds and kind of learn the industry. And once in a quarter, once twice a year, maybe even more often than that, they come to, to the ecosystem, they interact, they meet companies and then they invest. Right. So that's one way to do this. The other way to do this is actually have a local team, which I think mm -hmm. if you want to invest earlier, you have to do this, right? Because you have to be present in the ecosystem and sort of learn the ins and outs and what's what happens. And then this sort of branches to by and large two segments. One is having a local team that is part of a global firm. And this is, for example, Lightspeed or Bessemer or Norwest Venture Partners, that, that's how they operate, right? So they raise a global fund, could be a billion, a couple billions, and then 
they don't have a specific allocation to Israel, but they do have a specific team that operates in the ecosystem. And all of these funds are actually very engaged in the Israeli ecosystem. And, you know, they've been here for a very long time. Other, other funds tried a different model. For example, I think the, the recent one was uh, Sequoia, right? So, so they had a local team in Israel. However, they did not invest out of a global fund. Those teams actually raised their own capital, right? Um, obviously, they, they had the support and the infrastructure and the brand and, and everything um, from sort of the U.S. parent but they had a dedicated pool of money that they invested in Israel. It's hard to say which one works better and which one works less so. Um, the, the only thing that's evident right now is that, for example, Sequoia sort of closed their Israeli office and is investing in Israel using the first kind of model that we described, right? They can sort of remotely relate to, to the industry. They have local funds that they support and in touch with and then engage like this. Well, we should have started with this other question, which you know really well, but I'm not sure everybody knows, is what is the magic about the Israeli startup ecosystem? Maybe you can just describe a little bit about the ingredients that have created and nurtured so many really well-renowned companies and innovations and brands from, all things being equal, pretty small country. So I think so it's a combination of a lot of things, but first and foremost, where we are located and who we are, right? Yep. So we are located in a place where we're a very small country and surrounded by countries that are not as friendly to us as we might have wanted. So basically, by definition, our core business is export. So mm-hmm. and, and what's best to export? It's like, it's probably tech, right? So from inception, Entrepreneurs think their core market is not Israel. Like, right. You know, we sell outside, and and this is a barrier for a lot of startups that start very local. Then it's hard to become bigger. Right, which is um, often the, a problem in Europe. Right, that if you're a French startup, you're really thinking about the French market, and then then there are these barriers to growth. But if you're in Israel, you know your home market's so small, you have to start by thinking global and start by thinking big. Yeah. Exactly. And to be fair to Europe, these are every every market within Europe or every sub-market, like let's call it France or whatnot, is, is big enough, right? So, so some startups right. can be really big in France. And then the other thing about Europe, you know, the ecosystem in Europe kind of grew dramatically in terms of like thinking globally, right? So we see this also specifically in France and in Germany and, and the UK, obviously. But, but yeah, but like Israel has been like this from the get-go, right? So right. sort of mid-early mid 90s, that's when the ecosystem started. Um, the second thing is, it's who we are. We're like, I don't know if you know the word chutzpah, um, yes. and, and sort of praising failure, which is super important for startups, right? Because you, you have to be extremely optimistic and know that you're going to fail. Um, what do you mean by and, and praising kind of, failure? Is that literally what chutzpah means? No. So chutzpah means like, it, it means that you are willing to do things that other would look at you and, and would pause and say, well, what, uh, you know, <laughs> what were you about to do? So that's Hutka. And, and the other thing that's also very related to this is like the, the bringing up in the army, right? You're, you're becoming 18. You're like responsible for other soldiers three months after or six months after you just enlisted. You need core leadership skills when you're just becoming a, an adult. 
Exactly. And, and yeah. you also are expected to voice out if you think things are not what you think they should be. And, and actually, because we're small and, and flexibility is so important, then you're trained to this, right? And then what the beauty about this is, I think, you know, obviously now the army is much more sophisticated, right? So the intelligent corps and everything related to cyber and computers and deep technology and stuff like this, you actually get amazing training in the military, right? And what's beautiful about this is, is that the ecosystem, like the civilian ecosystem and the military ecosystem are just learned how to work together, right? If I go and say, you know, I went to Wharton and I worked for BCG and I did computer science in Tel Aviv University, like not praising myself for a second, but these are pretty good credentials. Still, like the first question and the most important thing will, will be, what did you do in the army? And like, huh. and like, I was a pilot in the Air Force, like, okay, that's something. And there are like specific things about, about startups that there are specific units and what each unit does that are super important for specific startups. And kind of the ecosystem knows that, right? And kind of understands how to interact with it hmm. and how to leverage that. The last thing is obviously sort of the government was very, you know, very smart at the beginning, mid late nineties and gave a lot of support to the ecosystem and gave guarantees to, to funds to start and invest and uh, support like early stage startups. But going, you know, for like a decade or two or three, there is no other place in the world, I'm putting China for a second to the side, outside of, even outside of Silicon Valley, that you will find such a sophisticated ecosystem of investors, repeat entrepreneurs, and all the tech giants like Facebook and Google and Apple and Microsoft and you name it. Everybody is like, is active in Israel. And what it does is like, it's creating, and on the one hand, it, cre it creates engineers, and it also creates like opportunities for acquisition, right? That's what they sort of, they are based in Israel to kind of live off of these doors. Right. I'm sure you've read the book. Some, some people have not. There's a great book called Startup Nation. I think that's the, the title that kind of goes through this and some of the other pieces of the growth of the Israeli startup ecosystem. So maybe we can move to then how you invest in Vintage, because as you, as you talked about in the beginning, you don't just invest in Israel. In fact, you really have a global reach. So why don't we kind of shift gears and talk about the way Vintage thinks about investing? Yeah, so, so that actually is a great segue. I don't think we discussed this, but literally the data behind the Startup Nation book came from Vintage. The writer I did is, not is, uh, plant is, uh, that question. That was a not. That was not a softball. Yeah, right. I did <laughs> not know that. <laughs> okay, so, so no, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's a it's a really good uh, segue because it tells you about the DNA of of our fund. Vintage Exo started at the end of the dot com bubble, right? So 2002, 2003. This was a time when, like, most of the L the LPs, like the limited partners that invested in venture capital in Israel, uh, were like, holy. What's going on? Someone told us tech is great. Someone told venture capital is great. Someone told us Israel is great. We're now in this illiquid asset. We, we want out. So Vintage sort of uh, was raised on, Vintage One was raised on the premise to actually buy these positions because, you know, we are long tech. We think that in the future it's going to be worth a lot and, and we would do this secondary transactions and, and hold them for a period and can buy them in a discount, which is a lot to do with what you guys do at Palco, so I assume under, people understand what I was just saying. 
So that's how Vinta started. And it was like buying LP positions in venture capital funds in Israel. The, the one thing that's important to understand, and that will take you to why we actually have the data to, to the book, is my partners, right? I joined like five years ago. They, they're in charge of creating all this value. But like the way they sort of thought about secondary transactions, like we will meet those companies because Israel is so small. So you can meet all these companies. And actually the, the culture is very open. So everybody's happy to talk to you. So unlike, you know, a lot of secondary buyers that will go and talk to the manager and say, you know, what's the net value? What are your great companies? We always wanted and want to understand what the companies are doing because they are the building loss for the portfolio. So we will meet them regardless and try to understand, sort of form an objective opinion on the company. Add to that because the secondary piece we'll talk about in a little bit, but when you're investing on the secondary market, of course, one of the big questions is the price, right? And for later stage company, you can look at revenue or even better you cash, know, flow. cash flow, and then yep. you do a discounted cash flow analysis. But when you're investing in early stage companies where there's a lot of aspirational KPIs, you have to be able to meet the team and see if you believe in the story, right? So I think that's really interesting that, that you were able to capture on, on the ability to kind of really sit down and meet with the team so that you could get com- more yep. comfortable and confident around the value that you're willing to offer as a buyer. Absolutely. So, so that's why everybody on our team, that's all we do, right? So we don't do private equity. We don't do real estate. We don't do discounted cash flows unless like these are companies that generate or you can do this. But like by and large, all we do is meet companies and form decisions. And we meet, I would say probably like 20 companies a week mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of collect all this data from these companies. And I'll get to what we do with this in a minute, but that's how we started. Fast forward to today. Um, we sort of realized that, which might be interesting to you, that today about 70%, maybe even slightly more than this, of, of the capital invested in the Israeli startup ecosystem is coming outside of Israel, right? It's coming so from outside. Driver. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's coming from you know from all the funds that we were just talking about, and you right. know from from large corp- large corporates and whatnot. And so, so for us, this was one thing that kind of one driver, and, and then the second driver was. We are benchmarking ourselves against, you know, global fund funds, global secondary funds, global direct funds. So we want to have exposure to the global ecosystem. So what we did was actually we started by building the relationship in the U.S. and then very quickly in Europe as well. And today we actually have three different strategies. One is our still secondary strategy. We're now investing out of our fourth secondary fund, and it's doing both the LP positions in venture capital funds and also buying direct positions in companies, shares of angels, ex-employees, founders who want some liquidity, both in Israel, Europe, and in the U.S. The second strategy that we employ is is a fund of funds. So this was like a very natural extension to what we did because we already got to know the managers and our investors are like, okay, so you already know the managers and now they come to raise funds. They're new funds. Why don't you do this? And and actually our analysis is very similar. So we collect the data about the companies, we build models on, on how we think the fund will perform. And, you know, this is one of the key metrics on how we kind of build our conviction in investing in a manager. So that's the fund of funds. And lastly, we're now, we're now investing out of our third direct fund where we do sort of growth stage companies and leveraging our relationship with our funds and either participate as part of a syndicate in a growth stage company or 
do like sort of an antenna round together with our funds and we can talk about these if, if, if of an interest. And all of them are active again in Israel, Europe and, and, and the US. And then these are the three strategies that we invest out of. But the fourth one, which is very related to the data that we have, yeah. is, is we have a team that's doing value add to our funds and companies. We have like our intellectual property is divided to two. We have, the first one is the relationship with the managers. This is core to the, to the vintage business, right? So we want to be the best we can, the best help we can provide to our fund managers. And then the second intellectual property is, is our data, right? So we have proprietary data about a lot of startups and a lot of innovation. So we thought about, thought about how to combine these two. And we're actually sort of created team. That's all, that's all they do, internal team. There is no cost to this. And we actually listen to more than 400 corporates today that tell us, you know, what are their pain points? What type of, you know, innovation they're looking for in their core businesses? Do we sort of help them connect with startups that sort of cater to their needs? And this is, is that like a subscription model or you, you sort of do consulting work on behalf of large strategics? There is no business model around this. Yeah. Um, you'll be surprised. <laughs> so, so this is a cost center within Vintage. We, yeah. we sort of, uh, we are investors, right? So what we do, yeah. the reason we do this is we want to be helpful to the ecosystem, right? To the, or to the startups, to the funds. And then we can come and say, see Mr. Andreessen Horowitz. These are the number of uh, companies that we introduced to these number of corporates. And we were able to, to generate these number of POCs, proof of concepts, and these numbers of POs that, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars to your company. This is how we kind of create value. I'm just building on that. Does, do the pure investors, the Andreessen Horowitz's of the world, like being in the same investment kind of ecosystem as strategics? Because strategics is to me, I've always thought that strategic investors are for very logical reasons looking for other goals other than just pure IRR and time way to return, right? They're doing like R and D and maybe they want to acquire the team and there's other pieces. So how does that how do you kind of square those two connecting startups with strategics and then hooking that into your more kind of pure investment yeah. part of your business? Yeah, I would, everything we do on the value added services side is commercial based, has nothing to do with investments. Got right? it. So let, let's say, I don't know, let's say Microsoft that has their own dedicated M&A team. They have their own venture arm, right? Yeah. But they come to us and, and they say, we need your best marketing tool. Like there, it has nothing to do with, with investments. And we need your a marketing tool that will help create better engagement for, uh, for our customer base that uses Office, whatever. But that's the request. And we help them find startups that provide these services or products and create commercial agreements between these two. So nothing to do with investments. Got it. Okay. However... We then, we then leverage this and say, Andreessen had like a company in that space and say like, listen, that's what we did. We found a really good customer to your startup. This is like created some value. We obviously right. can also lever leverage this because we now know what Microsoft thinks about this specific startups, right? Yep. Well, let's, let's talk about today. 
there's so much uncertainty and unknown, but I think it's pretty clear so far that there's going to be real winners and real losers um, to this crisis. Obviously, the travel, real estate, leisure, service, that's tough. But probably a lot of companies that you're looking at may, may win. I know from what we do at Palico, we're obviously a digital platform. And honestly, we, it doesn't really matter to us whether people can meet face-to-face or not. For us, we've always been a streamlined digital solution. And so actually, we've seen an increase of volume and interest on our platform. Not that we're ever wishing you know, another pandemic on, on somebody, but what are you seeing in terms of themes or types of companies that, that you're thinking about that you feel like will, will really benefit and be well positioned and kind of take advantage of this moment to grow and expand? So I think one thing we did um, at Vintage is um, we sort of created like an internal process on, on sort of, and, and the cadence was on a weekly basis where we sort of went through exactly this question, ran through the companies we have exposure to and the funds in their company and, and thought through what are the implications and how we can be proactive and helpful and maybe proactive and, and get more exposure to things that we think will gain value. The, I think the obvious one, and, and you mentioned some of this, right? So travel is the obvious one that, you know, is suffering now and all everything to do with ride sharing. Um, the other thing, the, the, the opposite side of this is actually, you know, the scooters companies, right? They are having a horrible time right now. Um, however, They're having a horrible yeah. time. Scooters, really? Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, well, I like, guess because people are just yeah. staying inside. I'm thinking compared with ride sharing, maybe they're doing better, but I guess compared to normal times, they're doing badly. Yeah. Yes. But that, but then what exactly what I wanted to say is like, yeah, think a month, a month from today when you're out of lockdown, right. Who will go on a bus or on a, you know, on a subway instead it's probably people are going to use more and more scooters or e-bikes or stuff like this. Right. So, so even very short to midterm, they might, you know, they might gain a lot. So, so even in the ride sharing or the mobility, there is like there is differences between you know between specific sectors. Um, I think offline retail is 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 a clear kind of you know suffering now, both in terms of like the you know people are not going out, but also the the other side is that the adoption to purchasing online and now you know kind of the the adoption curve kind of sped. Significantly, right? So, in I, I think in, in in the U.S., 12% of of retail is online. Why we wouldn't see a double, right? Even this year, right? So mm-hmm. everybody needs to to go online, and and we see this from with the online delivery, like in groceries and food. This sector is boom. By and large, on average, they they just grow significantly well across all geographies that we're involved in, right? So both the U.S., Europe, and and in Israel. Then the obvious winners are healthcare and healthcare from home and work from home, you know, everything that's related to productivity and, and stuff like this. But I think a lot of people kind of the, the second derivative is when everybody's distributed and everybody's working from home, like it's much easier for cyber hackers to kind of get into the system. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, Cybersecurity is, is uh, in the mid and long term, is, is a clear beneficiary of, of everything that's going on. 
you know, I, I don't know if you noticed like the Twitter announcement. I just saw that. Like, um, what's his name? Yeah. Jack Dorsey. Dorsey. Yeah. He yeah. announced that yeah. now Twitter is a hundred percent remote until who knows, right? Until forever. No, until for until for like you're not obligated to go into the office anymore. Which right? to so me, can... actually, that that announcement I feel like has some interesting um, ramifications because now there's this huge talent pool that if companies can figure out how to better harness remote workers, then we don't all have to live in super expensive areas like Silicon Valley or. Or Paris, <laughs> and, and and here and here you go, commercial real estate, yeah, and and even residential real estate. And honestly, I don't know how familiar um, our listeners are with uh, with the blockchain, with blockchain and everything related to crypto. But like these teams were by definition distributed. So it's sort of it's sort of a thing that's already started, but now kind of like the adoption is 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 much broader. And and Twitter is is a very big company. Right. You're right. Um, How about secondaries? We started by saying you told the genesis of your company was buying some some funds on the secondary market. How about right now? Do you feel like now will be an interesting time either to buy or sell things on the secondary market? We luckily were very um, slow to deploy our secondary fund during um, the last couple of years. So we have a, a lot of fresh capital that's available. And, and I think on the one hand, there is clear need of liqu- in liquidity, right? So, so investors need to rebalance their uh, portfolios. Some of them are heavily invested in, in, in sectors that we just described and, and have to have cash um, and stuff like this. So, so that's on the one hand, and we're starting to see this. On the other hand, I think there is still a lot of uncertainty about the impact of COVID on venture capital and specifically on, you know, on, on startups. We know that some, some IPOs are getting delayed, and stuff like this, but but I feel like that's on the one hand, some people need liquidity. On the other hand, they still don't know what's the impact and they're not super willing to sell at, at, at a large discount. I think the, the first phase is to see the Q1 reports, which is which are coming these days. And then, you know, to be more precise, Q1 was affected only in March, right? So right. Some, in some companies and, and a lot of the funds, like the Q1 impact is still not fully baked, like, like the COVID impact is still not fully baked in the Q1 results. We might need to wait to the summer, uh, to the end of the summer until, you know, people will, I don't know, to, I don't want to call it panic, but will realize that they need some, um, some liquidity because their venture holdings are not as they expect that they are. But we are, to your question, we're very active. We're always kind of in, in the lookout for for LPs so looking to sell their venture positions, and we all do this actively, right? So we're at, you know we're reaching out to our funds and we're reaching out to companies and we're reaching out to, to LPs that we know. Um, yeah, well, you know, interesting. We're on on Palico. We're definitely seeing venture as a as an interesting sector that we think, you know, might have some some good traction in this environment for, for kind of two intertwined reasons. One is that a lot of the underlying companies, like what we just talked about, are either not affected because they think of a crazy company like SpaceX, for example. SpaceX is literally going out of our, our planetary ecosystem, so that has nothing to do with COVID, or positively impacted all, you know, Amazon or whatever that there's not really much effect of COVID, but the sellers are potentially looking for places where they can, can get cash. And so venture is such a long 
um, long story that you have to hold on to that if it, it can be a real win-win that you can buy something that that is either has nothing to do with COVID or you feel like will actually benefit from and be able to provide liquidity for something where the seller is really happy to kind of close the chapter on that book and, and give it to somebody else. A hundred percent. And, and uh, I will, I'll just say from, you know, from, from a buyer perspective, right. Uh, I think, you know, people that are looking to get into tech or into tech investing and, and they don't have these liquidity issues right now. I think now, now is definitely the time, right. On, on the one hand, prices are going to be affected. So, and we've seen this over and over again in, in past cycles, right? The, the down cycle was when the great companies were created and venture capital did phenomenally well. Um, the, the other thing that the fundamentals are very strong, right? So we just spoke about like the online adoption, right? And what you need about, you know, cybersecurity and I'm biased, but if I need to invest now, will I invest in like, challengers, the disruptors, or the disruptees. Like, so it's, I think this is the time to, to get there. Yeah. Well, sounds like you're going to be pretty busy. I know we're busy here. And so we thank you so much for your, your time and, and your really interesting and thoughtful insights. So thanks for joining Palico's Capital Calls. Thank you, Claire. Really enjoyed it. Hopefully it was uh, helpful and interesting. Thank you.